would make for great movie making if somebody would have the guts to do it. They say that when Jesus saw the great throngs of people around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. So he and his disciples got into the boat and they put out to sea. Mark reports that there were other boats with them on this journey. And Luke reports that as they were sailing, Jesus fell off to sleep. Mark reports that he was sleeping in the stern of the boat on a cushion. But then, suddenly, from out of nowhere, a violent storm arose on the sea that was covering the boat with waves. Mark's report said it was a furious storm with winds of hurricane proportions. And he said the waves kept beating the boat so that it was becoming filled. Luke reports a very strange characteristic about this storm. He said what started it was a whirlwind, what you and I might call a tornado. But he said it was revolving from below upwards, which is backwards, folks. Twisters begin up in the sky and then revolve downwards, unless you're talking about something smaller. I mean, what meteorologists might call gusnados, they can start below because it's a push from above, but then it swirls once it hits the ground. And Luke does say that this whirlwind forming from below did sweep down onto the lake. The point is, from all three reporters, this is seriously devastating stuff. I mean, it's, it's a scary storm, and it came from out of nowhere. It seems to form around them. And Luke reports the boat was filled with water, and they were in great danger. But Jesus is still sleeping in the stern of the boat, sleeping on a cushion, and this storm is serious enough to freak out these professional seafarers. I mean, this was old hat for them, folks. They've been through storms at sea before, but nothing like this. Luke, the investigative reporter, and Matthew, the former public's official, both record that they woke Jesus up saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. Lord, rescue and preserve us. We're perishing. Save us. But Mark, Peter's secretary, so this is actually Peter's account, Peter records them saying, Master, don't you care that we are perishing? I love that. And, and this is just one example of why a lot of people can identify with Peter because he's a lot like us in our own inexperience and immaturity. Everyone else, they ran to Jesus to wake him up to save them from the storm. But Peter's attitude is a little different. This storm arises, and Peter knows what Jesus is capable of. But the storm is about to kill them, and he looks over at Jesus, and Jesus is asleep. So he gets a little frustrated. Jesus is dropping the ball on this one. And a lot of us in our own immaturity will come to the same conclusion about a lot of things in our own life. I mean, storms hit us too, folks. But Jesus sleeping during this devastating storm can be interpreted in three ways depending on your maturity. The mature and logical interpretation is to realize that Jesus is so powerful and so infinitely wise that this storm and all its fury doesn't even concern him. It concerns him so little that it doesn't even wake him up. So if he's not worried about it, you shouldn't be worried about it either. But that's not the way everyone in the boat interpreted his sleeping. The second interpretation was the one that Matthew and Luke recorded. They interpreted Jesus' sleep as evidence that he didn't know what was going on. You know, they were confident in his power. That's why they ran to him and yelled, Master, Master, we're perishing. Lord, rescue, preserve us, save us. We're perishing. So they were confident in his power. But they assumed that his sleeping was evidence of ignorance of the situation at hand. 
You know, wake him up. Jesus doesn't know about this storm, which is absurd because, of course, he knows about it. But Peter's interpretation of Jesus' sleep is one that a lot of us might have. On one level, it shows more maturity than the others, but on another level, it shows less. Unlike everybody else, Peter doesn't interpret Jesus' sleep as evidence that he didn't know what was going on. He interpreted Jesus' sleep as evidence that he didn't care. So when the storms are about to kill them, and Peter looks over at Jesus and finds him asleep, he says, Master, don't you care that we are perishing? But Jesus wakes up, and notice his reaction. This is great. This is, this is, this is so cool. In the midst of the storm, it's still beating and crashing about the waves against the boat. Throwing water inside the boat, the hurricane winds are ripping through. Notice Jesus' reaction in the midst of all this chaos. He says, why are you afraid? Of course, you know, how do you answer that, you know? And he said, you have little faith. Then Jesus stands up. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, be silent. And the wind immediately ceased. And there was a great calm. And then he turned to his disciples and said, where is your faith? How is it that you have no trust and no confidence in me? And they were seized with alarm and profound reverent dread. And they marveled, saying to each other, He commands even the winds and the sea. And they obey Him. Now, folks, there's a theory about this storm that's just a theory, but it's a theory that I happen to agree with, and it suggests that this storm may have been demonically induced. And it's just a theory, but the reasons for this theory is because the storm was sudden, it didn't build, it didn't grow, it came out of nowhere. Its severity scared the professional seafarers who had weathered all kinds of storms in their career. But they didn't know what to do here. They were scared for their very lives. They thought they were going to die. And all accounts say that Jesus rebuked the winds as though they were behaving in a way that wasn't natural. In Mark's account... It uses the exact same word that Jesus used against the demon-possessed man in the synagogue. Shut up, be muzzled, be gagged. And Luke's account, aided with West's word studies, it says he rebuked and censored the winds. And all of that kind of makes you scratch your head and say, what's going on here? But then it all makes sense when we discover what's waiting for Jesus on the other side of the lake. And this event is recorded by Matthew in chapter 8, verses 28 to 34, Mark in chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, and Luke in chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. They report that when he arrived at the other side of the lake in the country of the Gadarenes, as soon as he got out of the boat, when Jesus stepped out on land, Matthew reports that two men under the control of demons went to meet him coming out of the tombs, so fierce and savage that no one was able to pass that way. And they shrieked and screamed, What have you to do with us, Jesus, Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the appointed time? The appointed time. Interesting that they are aware that their days are numbered. Interesting. Now, of these two men, Mark and Luke home in on one of them and give us a little background information. Some people think that Matthew's record, because it says two men possessed, while Mark and Luke only mention one, that Matthew's account is either a different scenario or a mistake. 
But neither of those theories are accurate. This is the same event without contradictions. There were two men possessed, just as Matthew reported. But one of them was obviously a tag-along, which is why Mark and Luke primarily focus on the one guy and give us some background. Luke reports that for a long time he had worn no clothes. He was naked. And he didn't live in a house or a home, but in tombs. Mark reports that this man continually lived among the tombs, and no one, no one could subdue him anymore. At one time, they had been able to do so, but not anymore, not even with chains. For he had been bound often with shackles for the feet and handcuffs, but the handcuffs and the chains he would wrench apart, and the shackles broke him into pieces. And no one had strength enough to restrain him or tame him, so this guy is running wild night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always heard at night shrieking and screaming and beating and bruising himself and cutting himself with stones. Folks, so far in the gospel narrative, we have not encountered anything like this before. You kind of sense the internal torment and the conflict of wills going on inside this guy. The shrieking and the screaming and the self-mutilation of his body gives you the impression that the original owner of that body, who's still in there, is attempting to fight what's taking him over. We don't know if he's hurting his own body in an attempt to hurt the demons and drive them out, or if it's the demons hurting his body in an attempt to subdue his will. And we don't know if this guy screams all throughout the night or from the demons responding in anger to the will of the original owner of the body or the original owner screaming in response to the terror that it's dealing with. But this is weird. Mark reports that when this guy saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees before him in homage. Did the demons do that? It doesn't say, but I don't think so. It's possible that the demons saw him from an even further distance and caused the storm on the lake in an effort to prevent him from landing to begin with. But when the man who possessed saw him, he ran up to him and fell down on his knees. But the voices of the demons inside him cried out, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And then he said, I beg you, do not torment me. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he answered, My name is Legion. For we are many. Folks, what was known as a Roman legion was usually around five to 6,000 soldiers. There were around 6,000 demons crammed into this one guy. No wonder he had superhuman strength. No wonder he couldn't be bound. And they kept begging Jesus not to send them out of that region or into the abyss, the bottomless pit. But while all this was going on, at some distance there was a herd of hogs, around 2,000 of them, grazing on a hillside. And the demons begged to Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into that drove of hogs. And Jesus said, be gone. And immediately they came out of the man, entered into the hogs, and the whole drove rushed down the steep bank into the sea and died in the water. What a movie! If somebody would put that on film and do it right, you know? Now, it's from this that many assume there were 2,000 demons because they possessed 2,000 hogs. But nowhere does it say that each demon possessed only one hog. It said they, the legion, which is around 6,000, they came out of the man and possessed the 2,000 hogs, and they ran headlong down over the cliff and into the water and died. Well, the herdsmen saw this happen, 
And they ran away into the town and reported everything, including what had happened to the men under the power of demons. So the people of the whole town came out to see what had occurred. And when they got there, they looked intently at the man who had been possessed with 6,000 demons, just sitting there at Jesus' feet with clothes on, sitting there calmly and in his right mind. And this freaked them out. They all became seized with alarm and struck with fear. And others who were there as eyewitnesses told them of what had happened to the hogs. And this scared the whole town so much that they begged Jesus to leave their locality. So he did. Interesting, he didn't offer any argument against them. He just left. Now, a couple of things about this whole scenario here. It's interesting that the demons couldn't enter into the hogs without Jesus' permission first. If they wanted to flee from Jesus, why didn't they just escape, enter into the hogs themselves, you know? But demons can't possess any creature without permission first. They can't possess the Christian because it has the Holy Spirit locking the demons out. And it can't possess a person who isn't saved without that person's permission. And there's all kinds of ways that they can get permission. It's subtle and deceptive. It's what are known as entries. Several different subtle ways demons can get permission in today's culture. Anything involving Ouija boards, tarot cards, astrology. I mean, all that stuff invites demonic oppression. And depending on the will of the individual, even possession. Now, the sad truth is, even Christians can be oppressed. They cannot be possessed, but they can be oppressed. Which is why it's dangerous, even for Christians, to screw around with astrology and Ouija boards and tarot cards. All these things invite demonic oppression, and depending on the will of the individual, even possession. That's one of the dangers of mind-altering drugs, because they alter the mind into a state of surrendered will. Hypnosis is dangerous, because any psychologist will tell you it won't work unless the patient surrenders their will over to the one hypnotizing. But only man has free will. Notice that animals don't, because unlike the human race... The animals have never sinned. God gave them one command, be fruitful and multiply, and they've been obeying that command ever since. You won't find the culture of animals changing like ours does from generation to generation. The society of any species, I mean just, you know, the sparrows, whatever. The society of any species of animal is the same today as it was thousands of years ago. Romans chapter 8 even tells us that they were subjected to the curse, not by any fault on its own, but by God's will. And yet, with the hope that one day it will be removed and the sons of God will be revealed. Now, isn't that interesting? Unlike man, the animal kingdom is subject to God's will. So because of that, demons can't possess animals without God's permission. Because animals don't have the free will to surrender to demons like we do. Isn't that something? Another thing weird in all of this is that Jesus would grant these demons their request and allow them to enter the hogs. Nobody knows why, but we suspect it's to prove to the readers of the Bible throughout history that demons are not an old culture's attempt to explain psychiatric problems. The man was not schizophrenic. He was possessed with 6,000 demons. If he had just been insane, then what drove the 2,000 hogs into the sea? 
But this whole event freaked out the town so much that they asked Jesus to leave, so he did. And that's interesting. 6,000 demons couldn't force Jesus back into that boat. But the faithlessness of a scared little town could. Free will in force, folks. And when Jesus had stepped back into the boat, the man who had been controlled by the unclean spirits kept begging him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused to permit him, but said to him, Go home to your own family, and go home to your friends. Bring back to them the news of how much the Lord has done for you. So the man departed, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. 